Try this again. There's this tendency to elevate the nuclear family to this sort of godlike status. But I mean, the whole New Testament, the whole thrust of the epistles and Jesus' teachings too is that we're creating a new family. And it is for slaves and masters, men and women, Jew and Greek, all are part of this new family grafted into the family of God. So the notion that in order to be a good Christian, you have to be married with 2.5 children and your husband has to work, wife stays at home, these strict gender roles, that is a glorification of um, cultural values, American cultural values, the American dream. That is not a biblical value. Uh, the New Testament emphasizes a new family in Christ. Uh, not, and Jesus says, who, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? It's the people who follow after me. It's a new family. Uh, so we have to be careful of sort of glorifying, idolizing the nuclear family above all else. Are you saying the nuclear family won't save American communities? I don't think so. <laughs> Believe it or not, uh, I mean, I think I think Christ is salvation is in Christ, not in getting married, not in procreation. Uh, salvation is about being grafted into the family of God and welcomed to the family of God. Um, so, yeah, we have to be careful of of idolizing the nuclear family, idolizing culturally based gender roles and gender stereotypes. And we have to be very careful of leaving people out of the family of God, turning them away from the family of God because they don't fit into that idealized cultural expectation. And we see this happening with LGBT people. And what frustrates me most is seeing Christians slam the door of the kingdom in people's faces and saying, in order to be part of the kingdom, you have to be straight. In order to be beloved by God, you have to have a family and, and procreate and uh, all these other things. Um, when being part of the family of God is about being called and named beloved by God, being grafted. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, I want to take a poll real quick before we get started. Take a poll. Raise your hand if you have, if, you, if you've been married before, if you are married, if you are friends with someone who is married or related to someone who is married. That's interesting. That's interesting. Here's my next question. Raise your hand if you um, have been divorced before, are divorced. That, actually, that would be the same thing. Yes. Raise your hand if you've been divorced, you are related to someone who's divorced, you have a friend who is divorced. Okay. Uh, well, I guess that explains it, right? I guess that explains why this topic made it in to the four most requested pub theology topics of 2016, the topic that I did not find a speaker for this past year. Might be intentional. Ask me later. Um, which quite frankly surprised me, I have to say. It surprised me. I thought surely something else, something else, something somewhat a little hotter topic maybe would be one of these four, um, something that you could just watch me squirm a little bit up here. Um, but it was this, and this wasn't just one of the top. This was the number one requested topic, either divorce or marriage or both. I, almost every pub theology I got at least one with somebody telling me of some counselor in the area that could come and speak 
and tell you all the things you should know about being a good wife. Most of them had to do with that. Um, and I guess it kind of makes sense because clearly all of us, all of us, are struggling with this in some way. Either personally or relationally with someone else we know, um, all of us are dealing with this. I posted a Facebook status earlier this week, um, and I... And I said in the Facebook status, I wasn't really looking forward to delivering this sermon, um, mainly because I've been handed a load of crap by the church most of the time um, on marriage and divorce. And from the looks of it, you all have too, <laughs> probably. Um, plus, we have like a million perspectives in our congregation. And having sat with you all for coffee and having also greeted you at the door as a married couple and finding out you're not and then feeling really stupid about it, um, I know where we are. Like, so... There's all of that. So in this room, we have folks who are married and happily married and come to church together. In this room, we have folks who are married and have trouble happily attending church together. We have folks who have been committed to the same person for a long, long time and have made a life with that person, um, but they're not married. We have folks who are dating and considering marriage and looking at their parents' marriage that fell apart and wondering, um, is that worth it? I don't, I don't know. Um, we have folks in this room who have been divorced. We have folks um, who have been scarred from the rockiness of a parent's divorce. Um, we have folks who are single, looking forward to marriage, pining for that love of their life. And we have folks who are single and have no desire at all to find anyone um, to be married too. And so we have people all in between as well. And it's almost inescapable. As I prepared for this sermon this week, as I read scriptures and read the United Methodist social principles, and as I read the 52 comments on my Facebook status earlier this, this week, I, um, I realized that this is a weighty topic. You know, you know how something can just be not that big a deal to you at all and not be an obvious influence and not be a probing concern until all of a sudden you focus on it and then it's what you see everywhere you go all the time. All I could see was marriage and divorce this week. I began looking at couples and wondering like what their tr secret troubles were, are they really happy, I, like it's just what was in my head all, all week long. And so on the radio this week, of course, I'm on PB, um, PBR. That's a beer. <laughs> Love it. What is the radio? NPR. Thank you. <laughs> so on NPR this week, uh, of course, I heard a segment um, about that statistic, about that statistic we all know about, um, that over 50% of marriages fail. And you've heard it, and you know it, and we all have probably lived it. Um, and as I was reading the scriptures, I wrestled with what do we as people of faith do with that? What do we do with that? And what do we as people of faith do with all of these various perspectives on marriage now? And so, I mean, I hear that statistic, and we experience this statistic in life, and then we hear things like Deuteronomy. You heard that, right? Like, you heard it. Some of you tuned out, Deuteronomy. Um, so the harshness, the harshness of the language about divorce, how it's an abomination to God, how it pollutes the land, what do we do with that, given the fact that we're all, all of us, affected by it? 
Kim Kardashian, about five years ago, got married. And two days later, um, it didn't work out. We should give her credit. She made a try. I mean, she, she made a run for it. Um, but it just fizzled. And so we see that on E! Entertainment. And then we flip one channel further. And on the religious station of some kind, there's a pastor on there who is screaming about how divorce and fornication are eroding the very foundations of society. It's the cancer that's eating away at our families, our churches, our cities. And someone like me, I mean, quite frankly, I was left feeling a little hopeless about this topic, knowing that I personally have gone through um, a being an only child and not having anybody to talk to about my parents' rocky marriage, praying that it would end, um, and then being handed this kind of narration of faith and scripture um, and just feeling lost within it. And I'm guessing that I'm not the only one. <laughs> so... How do people of faith think about and approach marriage and divorce without squashing the perspective and call of a variety of voices, married, divorced, single, and all those in between? That's the question today. We're going to center on our gospel reading, which is um, the woman at the well, and it's going to be our driving narrative. It's going to be the playground that we are going to work in today. And I want two words to bracket our conversation, two words to dance together today. They will not be, like, they're not profound words, okay? So don't think that they are. Um, the two words are covenant and grace, Jesus redefines and raises the bar on both of these two. And so first, marriage. By the way, I feel like there could be a whole sermon series on marriage, and y'all would kill me if I did that. And so I'm going to save you from that and try to get it all in one Sunday. We're going to center on these two words, covenant and grace. That being said, marriage first. Marriage within the context of the Christian faith is couched in the notion of covenant. Are you surprised that I said that? Probably not. So this notion of covenant, this is, this is where I, oh, you go, okay, yeah, I know that. Covenant's the key word. It's the lens through which we understand what is happening in, in a marriage relationship. So when Christians talk about marriage, we talk about covenant. But what is Covenant. Covenant, in its most basic form, is rooted in person, in person and not performance. Covenant is rooted in relationship and not transaction. When Christians talk about marriage, we are talking about covenant, not contract. And those are two very different things. Contract is rooted in performance, not person. In other words, contracts are like, as long as you do this for me, I'm going to keep showing up for you. But as soon as you don't do this for me anymore, contract breached, I'm out. Covenant is couched in person. I'm yours and you are mine no matter what. That's covenant. When Christians talk about marriage, we talk about covenant. 
I actually have quite a few weddings coming up on my calendar in 2017, three already, which I think is quite a, quite a few already. Um, and I've had a couple of coffee dates already with these folks and a couple of Skype dates with them. And um, I always ask the couple the same two questions when I meet them. I'm, obviously, this is new for me, so like I say always, like the other two times I did it, I asked the question, <laughs> these two questions, all right? Um, so I always ask, so tell me, how did you meet? How did you meet? When did this all happen? And um, they always go back and forth. You tell her. No, you tell her. No, you tell her. You tell it better. And I sit back and I wait. <laughs> and finally, someone starts to tell the story. And I want them, um, I, I watch them exchange glances and I watch them touch each other's hands and smile at all the same parts in the story. And I watch them kind of fall in love all over again. And then I asked them the second question. So why do you want to get married? Like, why do you want to marry her? And, like, why do you want to marry him? And the answers usually go along these lines. He just makes me happier than anyone has ever made me before. Or she is the most amazing woman I have ever met. And about that time in the meeting, I lean over and gently say, listen, guys, you might have better luck down at the justice of the peace because, um, like, that's, that's all, that's just a contract. And, um, you know, when you bring me in, things get a little messier because I'm a pastor and I don't talk in contractual language. All I talk in is covenantal language because basically, and by the way, I'm not really that big of a jerk, just <laughs> like you all know. I don't like crush their dreams in the middle of grounded coffee. Um, but this is the dialogue going on in my head and the dialogue that I have gently with them, not that bluntly. Um, but basically everything you just said is frankly contractual language. What you said underneath is, well, he makes me so happy, and as long as he keeps making me happy, I'm in. And she is the most amazing woman I have ever met, and as long as she is the most amazing woman I've ever met, I'm in. When Christians talk about marriage, we rooted in covenant, and anybody who's been married longer than a Kardashian <laughs> knows that you are not going to be happy every day. And there are going to be days when she walks down the stairs and she is not the most amazing woman you've ever met. That woman might be sitting next to you at the cubicle at work. There's something else that's happening when Christians talk about covenantal marriage. And it's rooted in a different covenant altogether. Marriage is not the most important covenant in our lives. There's something more important. We're rooted in a primary covenant. And it happens, it actually happens, I'm going to get up and walk, object lesson. Um, it actually happens right here, right here at this bowl. For the ceremony of marriage, we... Come to the font first. It's always worth noticing um, that before the groom stood up there, 
and the bride processed in towards the groom. In the history of the church before that happened, groom and bride would process in together, following someone carrying the cross. And the first thing they would come to when they entered the doors would be the font at the back of the church. And they would touch the water together, and they would make the sign of the cross on their foreheads together, and then they would continue towards the ceremony up front. That came long before we began having the woman walk towards the man in some form of possession. Did you know that? It's worth noticing that in the Christian liturgy for marriage, we never ask you how you feel. We don't really care how you feel. What we want to know is what are you going to do? Are you going to love each other the way that Christ has loved you? And so in the liturgy of Christian marriage, the pastor stands up and says, hey, we're here because these two kids want to get hitched. And everybody's smiling and happy. And before any vows are taken, this sentence I ask you now in the presence of God and these people to declare your intention to enter into union with each other through the grace of Jesus Christ who calls you into union with himself as acknowledged in your baptism. In other words, this covenant here, the baptismal covenant, is the only reason you're making a marriage covenant together. The only reason, the only good reason to get married within our theology is that you can be more faithful to the promises you've made here together than apart. The only reason to get wed within our faith is because it's going to help you live wed to God more deeply. The only reason to enter into covenant with each other is because you've entered into covenant with God already. When Christians talk about marriage, this is what we're talking about. Pledging to help this person live more faithfully into this identity, being killed and raised again with Jesus. Pledging to help the person live more faithfully into who God's called them to be. That's what the whole story of the woman at the well is all about. We get hung up on the fact that she... She's had five husbands, and she's living with someone that she's not married to right now, yawn, whatever. What's interesting is that Jesus is a Jew and is inviting a Samaritan woman into a different way of being. When you hear Jew, hear covenant. Jews are God's covenantal people. So Jesus' covenant is is in conversation with someone who is living in contractual hell, continually searching for something that she's, she's for some water to, to quench her thirst and always coming back more dry than she was before. And Jesus says to her, hey, I've got what you're looking for, and it's covenant. It's giving yourself fully and being given to fully, no matter what. Come to me, and I'll show you exactly what I have in mind. 
covenantal living. I'm yours and you're mine no matter what. All of that is in this little word, covenant. So that's the bell on marriage. Go home. You're fine. (laughs) Class dismissed. Um, So what does that mean about divorce then? What happens when covenant breaks? What happens when marriage has been merely contract for so long, we don't even know how to breathe covenant into it anymore? We hear scriptures like the one in Deuteronomy. Um, We hear Jesus talk a little bit about it in Matthew 25, too, even. And Jesus says, if anyone divorces his wife, except for grounds of unfaithfulness, he is committing a sin. What do we do with those things? First of all, we need to understand the context. Does anyone notice the male slanted language in these texts? Does anybody notice that? The women do. <laughs> the women heard it. The women are like, hold on, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean a man can give a woman a certificate of divorce? They hear that immediately. And rightly so, in the context of these texts, when Deuteronomy was written and what Jesus is talking about, divorce is only a man's gain at this point. And if you were a woman and were unfaithful or if you weren't living up to whatever was expected in your vows or if you were unfruitful, take that to be whatever it is, all you'd have to do, write you a certificate of divorce, send you on your way, and he could go find a new wife. And you would be left discarded. No money, no name, no support, completely isolated and ostracized in society. In God's law, and by God's logic embodied in Jesus, it is clear that we do not discard people. That's a matter of justice for us. This is not God condemning people who have been in broken relationships. This is not an internal damnation or condemnation of anyone who has ever gone through a divorce. This is the heart of God saying, you are in covenant with me, the God who has never discarded a single one of you and never will. You will not discard each other. This is the first women's liberation movement and biblical times through the law and the gospel. We do not discard each other. Understood in the context of our primary covenant, this makes sense. This is crucial (laughs) because those of us who have been shaken by divorce in any way, we come to church thinking that divorce is somehow an unforgivable sin. And that life stops there. Remember the woman at the well, encountered by the grace of God and Jesus, she goes away dancing. She finds the one who always, always has more grace than she has brokenness. Who always invites her to a new way of being and gives her a chance to start again. In covenant with God who doesn't give up on us, Divorce is not a death sentence. There is life on the other side of divorce because with God who meets us here, we always get to begin again. No matter how many times we've 
broken the covenant ourselves, no matter how many times the covenant has just fallen apart around us, always, always we can begin again. In fact, the critical discipline, and here's your one little nugget of advice, like marriage advice. I didn't want to write a sermon about marriage advice. So here's your one little nugget. In fact, the critical discipline in both marriage and surviving divorce is learning to begin again. In fact, the critical discipline in the Christian life is learning to begin again. Learning to begin again with the one you're in relationship with, learning to begin again with God, learning to begin again with yourself. This is baptismal. This is covenant. And in light of this covenant, every perspective we bring to the table today makes sense. If you are unmarried and in a serious, committed relationship, it does not mean you missed out on covenant. Your relationship might just be more covenantal than some of the contractual marriages in the room. If you are single and you felt that you are missing something deep within you that is covenantal, you might just want to know that because of this covenant here, it is made possible for you to sit with a grieving mother after losing a baby and enact covenantal love. It's made possible for you to sit with a mother who has Alzheimer's and is angry and saying things you can't imagine, and you sit with her anyway. That's covenantal love. If you are gay or if you are lesbian and you have been kept out of this kind of covenantal love in the church, if we baptize them, we marry them because marriage in that font cannot be disconnected. It all comes down to the font. In light of the primary covenant, we all can participate in God's covenantal living. We all can begin again. Beginning again is important, and we should do it daily. So maybe, maybe it might be good whether you're married or going through a divorce or know someone who's divorced or don't want to ever get married, maybe we can begin again together here. Maybe we should do it like weekly. As God's family, did you hear, um, did you hear earlier from Rachel Held Evans that we have been grafted into a new family? And so when we are grafted into God's family and confess that covenant is not perfect, and yet God has not given up on us, we begin again. We should get together and we should feast weekly at God's table, remembering that God makes family out of everybody. We should gather around this font and dip our hands in it and remember that God cleanses us every week and invites us to begin again marriage and divorce in light of our baptism means being wed to jesus and being faithful to the call that god has given to us 
And so this morning, as we receive communion, and I will remind you of it and, and enact it myself, as we receive communion, I invite you, like the bride and groom before a wedding ceremony, to come forward and to touch the water at the back of the room before coming forward to be wed to God today.